All right, everybody, I am here today with Joe Oglesby. He is the president of Premier. How are you doing today, Joe? I am terrific, James. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So Joe and I are going to talk today about portfolio valuations, um, ISO acquisitions, some of these things that have really been kind of up in the air and, and one of these long-term concerns that a lot of people have right now with the coronavirus and the impact it's having on portfolios. Uh, Joe has been, we'll give us his story in a second, but he's a longtime industry professional, a lot of experience acquiring portfolios, acquiring ISOs. So before we dive into that, though, Joe, I'd love to get a little bit of your backstory to get some context for our listeners. How did you get into this industry? How'd you end up at Premier? Good question. Um, sure, I'd be happy to tell you my history. Uh, it's going to show my age, however. I've <laughs> uh, been in this industry about 27 years. Uh, started with a company as a, a district sales manager covering about seven states here in the Midwest. Uh, they were at ISO based out of uh, Chicago, Illinois. And, and just really build a 1099 uh, sales channel for them for about four and a half or so years, five years. And then they were acquired. And, and through that acquisition, it really spurred uh, the, the initiative uh, for me to move out on my own. So I started uh, Premier back in uh, October of 1998. So we're uh, in our 22nd year as we speak. Wow. Started with a small ISO out of Houston, Texas, and, and really just started as uh, uh, an individual rep, uh, as, uh, as an ISO agreement with this uh, ind individual group out of, out of Houston, just started calling on merchants on my own, and, and over time started to add a rep here and there, and then move into an office, and, and over the last 22 years, we've, we've grown where we have reps mostly all over the country, merchants all over the country. We have offices in St. Louis and Evansville, Indiana. And uh, along the way, we, we also created a digital marketing company about six years ago to uh, uh, add additional value to our merchant base in, in, in getting them into the digital arena and, and helping them present well uh, when they're looking at their local listings, websites, social media posting, things of that nature. So our business itself has evolved over, over the years to, sure. to the changing times and how uh, consumers uh, interact with business owners today. Yeah, a um, true uh, a true uh, uh, agent success story, Joe. I mean, you know, we've talked to a lot of folks in this industry, and you know how they've uh, grown with the industry. Uh, you're you're you seem to me to be a prime example of of, of success opportunities that are out there. You know, it's it's a great industry. Uh, you know, the, the fact is, as an individual, you can you can start on your own. Uh, you get a good relationship with somebody that you can build mm -hmm. business with. And it really just depends on your work ethic um, and, and strategies of, 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 you know, just leveraging what's brought to you by your, your provider and uh, getting out there and making it happen day in and day out. That's what makes this industry great. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Joe, before we get into I know everybody wants to talk right now about, you know, what, what's going to happen to my portfolio with, you know, the coronavirus and the, you know, potentially – uh, damaging residual impacts and things like that. And we're going to get to all that. But I really want to first kind of establish just the norm to make sure that everybody you know listening really understands. There may be some smaller ISOs that have never even contemplated acquisition or portfolio sales and things like that. So before we dive into the specific coronavirus impacts, um, what would you say to an ISO? Let's say they've got a $50,000 a month you know net residual that they're bringing in every month. What would you say are some of the top three or four things that they really need to understand about how to value that business? Um, you know, what's really impacting that price that somebody like you is going to pay for a, a portfolio acquisition like that? Um, the, the reality is, I think, that where you really have to start uh, is, is if you have a direct relationship with uh, one of the processors, that's a really good start. If you're an MLS uh, or a sub-ISO for a larger ISO, that creates different challenges that you're going to experience. So if you have a direct contract with one of the processors, that, uh, that gives you a, a leg up. It, it gives more opportunity to the buyers because those buyers may have relationships with those processors. In our particular situation, we have relationships with all the major processors. And when we make an acquisition, uh, having that direct relationship really allows us to have the confidence that the redirect of the residual revenue is going to go seamlessly, and, and we're not going to have a lot of issues with that because the direct relationship we have with that processor, those merchants just become ours. When you're in a situation as an MLS or a sub-ISO, you know, we then would have to, or any buyer would have to then develop a relationship with that ISO that you're with and then and try to determine you know, the confidence level we're going to have in them helping us manage that book of business. Right. Now, the other thing is, is we're going to we're going to concentrate on, you know, the overall revenue uh, to your merchant account. 
you want to you want to look for for some diversification of risk. And, and what I mean by that is is you don't want to be real top heavy. You don't want to have a handful of merchants that account for the vast majority of of your revenues that you're generating. Uh, you may right. also want to have some diversification in risk risks geographically uh, in today's world with uh, the COVID-19 virus. That's important. Um, you may want to have a diversification in risk in the types of merchants. You know, if you have a heavy a restaurant portfolio today. Obviously, you're going to right. be suffering more so than somebody that's in a B2B environment or a um, or an environment that is a service-oriented businesses, for example. Um, you know, the ongoing sales engine is important. You know, what is that going to look like? Uh, what type of ongoing sales engine do you have? Uh, do you have a, a stable of 1099 independent reps that write business with you? Uh, do you have referral partners? whether they're associations, community banks, things of that nature. Maybe you have uh, an ISV relationship with a software vendor or, or multiple software vendors. All of those factors really uh, determine the ongoing uh, business that can be uh, added to this portfolio after the acquisition is, acquisition is made. Um, you know, we talk about these special circumstances like an ISV relationship, agent banks. Um, all of those bring value. Um, you know, if, if you have uh, the majority of your revenue coming from one big ISC relationship, for example, or uh, a handful of independent reps produce most of your volume and that's most of your downline you pay, some of those things, when you get top-heavy, create some concern for the buyer and mm -hmm. where the real value is. Because if they were to lose that big merchant or that ISC relationship or one or two of those big reps, then the going forward production really can hurt your um, hurt your valuation as well. I'd say probably the last thing is is a consistent residual in production numbers, uh, not huge mm -hmm. fluctuations over the past you know 15 to 18 months. If you're having huge growth, that's great. But if you have a lot of fluctuations in, in, in residual revenue that goes up and down um, and or production numbers that spike up and down, you know, th that consistency it creates uh, some level of um, confidence in the buyer that what they see in your history is going to be something they're going to see on a going forward basis. So those are kind of the top four or five things that I would think about when I'm looking at a portfolio uh, to acquire or an ISO to acquire. Well, it, that, that's really cool. Let's, let, I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind, Joe, if you could sort of take us down the road of, of why um, ISO, you know, a small to medium ISO might be coming uh, to a company like yours. I mean, what are what are their top reasons for wanting to uh, to sell their business or portfolio? You know, in today's market, um, there's really two primary reasons. You know, uh, like myself, there's a lot of in industry veterans out there who, in essence, may be aging out of the industry. Uh, individuals mm -hmm. that have been in the industry 25, 30 years have built a sure. nice business, but they're simply looking for an exit strategy. Uh, maybe they have this sales channel that's successful, and they don't know what to do with it after the fact. Uh, they have an operational center with employees, and, and, and they need to wind that down over a period of time if they want to ride off into the sunset in a retirement. So we can help them plan for an exit strategy because, A, we'll, we'll be happy to, to build a relationship with their, their sales channel to, to build and, and move business going forward. But in addition, we'll help them unwind their operations by moving that all into our operations center. You know, the second mm -hmm. uh, reason that we find uh, candidates for acquisition is working capital. They need working sure. capital to grow. Maybe it's an ISO that has a handful of 1099s or have one or two good referral partners, and, and they've gotten themselves in a position where they, they're basically turning the wheel, and, and they're not really moving forward because they find themselves not having enough capital to market to get other reps. Maybe they don't have enough capital to uh, market into the marketplace because – you know, there's a lot of different ways to pick up merchants today, and cold calling is still one of them. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of other strategies. So these individuals are, are looking for working capital. And in addition to that, they're going to be looking for some help as, as that goes on. So exit, exit strategy and working capital are, are really the two primary reasons we find uh, hmm. acquisition opportunities. So, Joe, um, I want to dig into the second reason a little bit because I think um, I think most of our listeners get the idea of the exit strategy, kind of a no-brainer, right? Like, I want to get out of the business. I want to get some cash before I do that. So I think they understand that. But as far as working capital, so let's talk about that a little bit more in depth. You know, when we do have the, um, you know, let's say we have the ISO and, uh, you know, they're looking to grow. Maybe they're at, you know, 30,000, 40,000 uh, in residuals. 
and they want to grow their business. Talk to me a little bit more about that. Why would they turn to somebody like Premier to get that working capital? What are they exactly doing to scale up with you? So there, there's a number of factors that really come into play. Uh, depending on what their current residual base is, uh, and in a lot of cases, they want to keep some type of cash flow. So they're probably not going to want to sell their entire portfolio uh, for working capital. If, if they don't have any additional cash flow beyond that, what happens is they acquire or will acquire their portfolio. They get this big block of capital. They'll pay taxes on it, and they'll start eating away at that capital to, to grow this business. And unless they have a, a really effective sales channel or strategy to grow rapidly, uh, they could eat through that capital pretty quickly. So, sure. you know, what we really look to do for them is, is find what portion of their residual stream um, would give them enough capital to, to move to the next level. And, and part of that also is not just working capital. Most of these individuals are looking for help. Okay, they typically um, have an operation system of some sort. Maybe they have an operation manager running their office that's doing their onboarding and, and possibly even deployment and taking customer service calls and so forth. But in a lot of instances, that particular principal finds themselves playing in that role as well. Um, somebody takes a vacation, they get sick, what have you, they find themselves you know, basically running and, and working in their business and, instead of uh, not working on it. You know, and, and what I mean by that is, is that, you know, you've got a process app, you have customer service calls, rep support, you have rep training, you have terminal deployment. All of those things take a lot of time and effort away from a principal who's trying to get out and hire sales reps, train them, getting them productive, managing them on a day-to-day -day basis. Or that particular principal is wanting to develop more referral partner relationships, whether it's an agent bank, an ISV, an association, what have you, when they get bogged down right. in the day-to-day -day operational functions, it eliminates that, that ability. What we do yeah, sure. is we take that away from them. Okay? We show them how they basically can go back to being the sales professional that they, that they were when they entered this industry and before they built a customer base. And, and typically, depending on the size of this, this group, if it's one or two individuals, they're going to get to 200, 250, 300 merchants, and then all of a sudden the operational functions start to consume them on a daily basis, those customer service calls and so forth. So through our model, we can show them how they can leverage our operational center um, and, and utilize that to handle all of that day-to-day -day functionality all the way down to accounting, paying their downline. Right. Uh, you know, we, we, we basically take and strip out their operational structure if they choose to want to do that, and that allows them to focus on sales and use the capital to do that. So one thing I want to touch on that you actually mentioned in, in a previous question here, um, you mentioned in your response about some of the keys to valuation is actually the sales team itself, or maybe it's not a sales team, maybe it's referral partners, whatever it is, this distribution. Um, that's something that's really overlooked. When people talk about you know, portfolio value, a lot of times they look at it as a purely financial transaction of an arbitrage where you're trying to get the right multiple for the right residual. But, you know, there's mm -hmm. also this idea of, okay, but we have a sales team that's selling 30, 40, 100 deals a month. Joe, can you talk a little bit about that and what impact does that have on the actual, you know, final acquisition price or portfolio acquisition cost? That's a great question, James. Um, it has a lot of value, quite frankly. Uh, the models that we build, we not only look at attrition, uh, in, our, in our financial models that we build when we analyze the portfolio, the static piece of that portfolio. We also build into our model uh, what new growth is going to look like. Even after rev sharing with the sales channel, um, what we're going to do is we're going to look at what kind of additional capital month in and month out are we going to see coming in from the new business um, that, that goes forward. In a lot of cases, if, if the portfolio is not big and the sales engine is growing, um, that, that has uh, – the ability to bring more value to the acquisition than the actual static portfolio does right, uh, right out of the gate. You know, it, it really also kind of depends on the buyer's uh, expertise, what they what their ecosystem looks like. Uh, you know, are they a, a 1099 shop primarily? Right. Uh, does the buyer primarily uh, have a sales channel that works through referral partners like bank uh, agent banks and associations and ISCs, as we spoke about? You know, their relationship uh, with with their current you know sales environment also needs to kind of match up in, in a lot of cases with what the seller uh, looks like as well. You know, when, when you start talking about referral partners and associations and ISVs, you know, there's all types of contractual uh, relationships that have to happen. So, again, one of the values that we can bring to somebody that's looking for working capital to grow is, is we've done all of these things, and, and we can 
provide them the agreements if they want to go out and get an agent bank or an association, or we can help them close an ISV transaction because we've got the contracts, we've already negotiated them, so right. we have all that, and they don't have to, to get into that you know, additional cost. You know? Sure. The other thing that, that it relates to we talked about earlier is, is you know, if you're producing 15, 20, 25 deals a month, you really, in a one- or two-man operation, start to get bogged down again in the operational functions of everything mm-hmm. that goes on. So if we could take that away from that, from you and you have capital to add to it, maybe you move from 15 to 20 deals to 30 to 50 deals a month. You know, at this this you know industry at times can be a, a really lonely world out there uh, for a one, two, three, four person ISO because um, you're really not aligned uh, with anybody. You're, you're aligned with a processor right. uh, through the consolidations that we've seen today in our industry. The the processors are looking at those smaller uh, ISO operations and, and and they look at them as a burden uh, more so than they look at them as as value. You're right. And and I think what what some of these uh, smaller ISOs are going to experience is they're going to have to align themselves with a bigger partner to have a better voice. And it's also, you know, becomes less lonely out there. You, you understand what's going on in the industry. You get involved. You have other products possibly to sell. We spoke earlier about our digital marketing side of our business. Um, we have lead generation tools, things of that nature. So we bring that type of uh, value to uh, an acquisition target to help them grow as well. It's just not all on them. Right. Mm, sure. So, um, you know, one thing, Joe, before, because I, I really want to get to the impact of the coronavirus on portfolio valuations, but I, I, one other thing real quick I wanted to cover with you, kind of a side note. So I know that you primarily work with more what you would call ISO acquisitions where they've got, you know, 25000 or more, I would say, in, in um, monthly net residuals. But I want to see if you have any tips for those agents right now who have, you know, that 8000 a month, 6000 a month, 12000 a month portfolio um, are there any tips? We've talked a lot about the ISO side, but are there any tips you have for those individuals that, especially coming out of this um, situation, maybe in the fall, they're like, wow, you know what? That was a tough year. I'm ready to sell that portfolio and build another one. Do you have any advice for those with smaller portfolios that maybe don't have that big sales team? Yes. Um, you know, their their options are, are, are more limited, quite frankly. Sure. Um, their, their, their multiples are, are typically more limited as well. Um, their current sure. provider is, is, is typically the best candidate to start with. So if they're a, an MLS with an ISO, you know, that, go into that ISO that they're working with right. and, and talking with them about uh, selling all or a portion of their portfolio. That's the best place to start. Typically, every MLS agreement is going to have a first right of refusal. Some ISOs uh, uh, will acquire their, their downline's uh, portfolios, and, and, and some ISOs don't. So I would say it, it's the most quick and painless way to go. Um, whether you get the most value for it is 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 the question um, to, to think about. So, you know, if if you want to look at your existing relationship and see what kind of value that they present, right. and then you know, obviously in, in the green sheet and, and, and a number of our other trade publication, there are other companies out there that will buy uh, revenue streams regardless of the size. Right. So you might be able to go out and talk to your existing existing ISO, and then go out and talk to one of these other entities and and see what kind of competing. Uh, multiple you can get on your portfolio. You know, those typically are the options that you're going to find in, in that particular world as an MLS or even a, a small ISO right. uh, that's a sub-ISO for somebody that's larger an MSP of some sort. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like what I hear you saying is um, start with your existing, you know, you're, you already have an ISO you're selling for. They're probably going to be best positioned because they, they don't have the risk that an outside buyer would have in terms of, you know, what if the ISO stops paying us, that kind of thing. So your existing company is probably the best place to start, see what value they get. And then it sounds like you're saying maybe go to the market to a Cutter Financial or some of these other institutions and check and see what kind of value they would present and see how it compares with what your, your ISO offered. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, that's that's spot on, actually. Right, that, that's spot on. You know, the reality for the, the the provider that you have today, that you're boarding business with, they also know the history of that portfolio. Right. You know, they can go into their own system and, and look at, you know, do you have uh, one or two accounts that uh, are are running most of the residual revenue to the, to that particular portfolio? Right. Um, is it spread out? Is it diversified? As we talked about, they have all that history uh, right. on those merchants for however long they've been there, so they have the clearest view of what. Uh, that portfolio looks like and the value it has. Sure. 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 Okay. So uh, we've talked about, I think everybody now listening hopefully has a more of a clear picture of what we're talking about, portfolio acquisition, ISO acquisition. So let's go ahead and pivot, Joe, and let's talk about the coronavirus and the situation that we face. So as somebody that is, you know, actively acquiring ISOs, acquiring larger portfolios, 
what are your thoughts? What's going on with this? Uh, you know, what, how is this going to affect the, the portfolio valuations going forward? You know, that's a, that's a great question, and I don't know that um, I have a great answer. I have sure. uh, what I would consider my view and, and, and my outlook. Um, currently, you know, we're in St. Louis and, and in Indiana, and both of our uh, states are in a uh, stay-in-place environment until uh, right. the, the latter part of April. I think April 24th is, is where we're stuck at. So a lot of businesses in our area are, frankly, just shut down. Right. So I think mm-hmm. a big part of this will determine how long – does this stay in place and these businesses being closed, you know, is it going to be one month through April and then everybody start opening back up? Is it going to be April and May, June? You know, the right. fact is, is that if it, if it runs out too long, the reality is some of these businesses will never come back. So to go back and, and what we typically do and anybody does in, in acquiring a portfolio is you typically look at the last 12, 15 to 18 months of residual data. And we have various benchmarks that we, we push that data up against in our portfolio to determine margin, um, right. you know, the, the things that there's, there's many factors there. So some of those things really just go out the window. I mean, you're, you're going to look at the last two to three months, right. and, and the reality is you don't know what's going to be there. So I think what, what's going to invariably happen is, is determining how long is this going to last. So, for example, we, we monitor our processing volume, and, and for the month of March, with a handful of days left in the month of March, we're down about 15% in volume. Right. 15 or 50? I'm sorry. 1.5, 15. 1.5, okay. We're, we're currently down 15% in processing volume. However, that's really not going to speak to the actual loss percentage-wise in residual revenue because, let's face it, restaurants, they're all closed. Well, those typically are small margin merchants. They may have large processing volume, but they're highly competitive and they're small margin. Our B2B accounts that are still processing significantly, maybe we have them in a level three program, what have you, those are some larger uh, volume and larger margins. So I anticipate projecting that we might be down in in March uh, by about 4% in revenue. So as you know, that all plays out in April. So Right. When April comes along and all of these businesses are closed in, in specific geographical areas, especially your hotspots hot like New York and Chicago and, and, and uh, California and so forth, those hotspots are going to see uh, a significantly larger impact to their residual stream than, you know, say somebody in the Midwest that uh, they're, they're really not being affected as, as greatly. Businesses are still operating right. typically on a, on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, what I would suggest is, is, is not rush. You know, if you're, if you're a ISO out there and you see your portfolio revenue, I, I, would, I would suggest that you, you, you sit and, and take a look at what April is going to look like and, and what the country is going to look like coming in into May and, and into the summer as well. And, and what you might end up having to do if you're, you're looking for capital to grow, maybe this puts you behind the eight ball, but you still want to keep going. Maybe you work a, a scenario out with a buyer that you take a very small portion of the of, of the valuation up front right off the table and then over the next three months and then over the next six months you evaluate how many merchants did we lose if any you know did the processing volume come back to where it was before and then you can maybe readjust that valuation and or get you know more revenue up front in, a, in the next three months and then then the, and then the next six months a typical uh, valuation you know you're 75 80 percent of your valuation you get those dollars up front and then there's typically an out period of, of, you know, 12 months, 24 months, and it's based right. on attrition, it's based on future production and so forth. So I wouldn't rush as a seller to get out in the marketplace and, and try to get your portfolio evaluated because I would have to think any buyer that um, is a smart buyer is going to look at the next month or two to say, okay, how do we navigate through this and right. how much of this business is actually going to be lost? Mm-hmm. Sure, time. sure. So it sounds like what you're saying, Joe, is that, you know, number one, if you don't have to sell now, it's probably a good idea to wait um, until, you know, we got a better, uh, you know, so any buyer would have more of a clear picture of what's happening. But then I, I think what I also hear you saying, and maybe you could elaborate a little bit, is it sounds like you're saying if you do move forward, even in the next few months, when the long term is still uncertain, it sounds like you're saying that deal structure itself might change a little bit to where less money up front, more money on the earnout, so everybody involved can you know nobody's getting a bad deal. Everybody can kind of see however it plays out, and it's going to true up over time. Is that is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, that's spot on, James. Spot on. You know, the reality is, 
You know, the old saying is, is, is a good transaction is when both parties win. Right. And, and the reality is if you're looking for capital and you want a good partner going forward, uh, the opportunity for both parties to win is to be uh, cautious in today's environment based on businesses that may never reopen and or businesses that reopen that come into slower growth. Right. So, you know, the sure. cautious nature of that is, you know, let's face it, there's going to be some ISOs that their income is going to be devastated because of the fact that, you know, their residuals were cut in half. Right. So those particular individuals may need capital just to stay afloat. Right. So they may be able to find a partner to say, listen, here's what the portfolio looked like prior. Right. Here's where it could be in three months or six months once we get through this pandemic and things get back to normal. They need to be comfortable with the partner that they're going to go with that can provide them some capital now, a lower percentage of the overall valuation. Right. And then, you know, the, the, the next big payment could be in just in three months. You know, right. we could see things mm-hmm. happening where things get turned around in May and, and June and, and boom three, four months down the road, you can get that other big portion and then earn the rest out over a 12 to 24-month period. Having the ability to be active and producing for that new partner that just bought your portfolio, that's going to bring a lot of value to the transaction as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sure, sure. Absolutely. So, Joe, I want before I, you know, this has been so helpful. It's such good information. I think a lot of people, you know, listening to this are going, okay, like take a breath, you know, mm-hmm. um, things are going to get back to normal at some point and, you know, whatever normal is going to look like and all that. So such good information. Joe, I'd love for you to tell our listeners, um, you know, a little bit more specifically about Premier, what types of ISOs are you looking to acquire so that maybe there are some ISOs out there that say, hey, I, I fit that criteria. Maybe now is not the best time, but I'd like to start that relationship. Can you give them a little bit more context of exactly what types of ISOs you, you look to work with? Sure. Thanks for uh, asking that question. Um, we, we typically start with looking for an opportunity that is within the processing networks that we currently have relationships with. You know, First Data. Uh, Global Thesis now, uh, WorldPay, uh, uh, Vantive, th- those three processing entities, and again, they change names all the right. time, as we know. But those, those, right. those, three, those three entities, we have great relationships, and we're boarding business on all of those platforms today. So finding uh, an ISO out there that is working with one of those directly makes the trans- uh, transaction a lot easier, a lot sure. quicker a lot more seamless because we know how to interact with those particular processors. That's, that's typically step number one for us. Step number two is, is on the low end, we would, we would look at an ISO that maybe has 25000 a month in net residual revenue as a starting point. Uh, we typically would go up to 250000 a month in net residual revenue. That's kind of our sweet spot. What I typically find is that 25000 to 100000 125000 a month is – Somebody that's looking for working capital, wants to be a partner with us going forward, loves all the other stuff we can do operationally, digitally, and that sort of thing, and, and become a good partner growing forward. Um, once you start getting north of that 125, those are typically the individuals that are looking for an exit strategy. Sure. You know, they have a sales channel that we can absorb, and they're just looking to get out of the business. So those are kind of the two, uh, you know, worlds that we look at, and, you know, from, from 25,000 to two. 250000 a month in net residuals. That's kind of the sweet spot we live in. Sure. So okay. if, if somebody listening right now fits that uh, criteria, Joe, and they want to reach out and establish that relationship right now as things are kind of crazy, um, where would you send them? How would they reach out to you? Uh, they certainly could call my office at 636-207-9000. Uh, they can reach me via email at jooglesby at ppsstl.com. Uh, Again, Joe Oglesby, I'm on LinkedIn. They can reach out to me through LinkedIn as well. So um, those are a number of ways that they can uh, communicate directly to me. Awesome. Joe, thank you so much for your time today. I know this is a hot topic on a lot of people's minds right now, what's happening with portfolio valuation. So I appreciate you sharing your experience and insights with our audience today. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy. Brought to you by The Green Sheet. For the past 36 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at greensheet.com.
Okay, well, you know, James, continuing with our special coverage in this time of coronavirus, I wanted to start out today with a a couple of data points on um, restaurants, which, of course, we know has been a a really uh, seriously impacted sector. So the National Retail Association, excuse me, National Restaurant Association, is forecasting $225 billion in losses to restaurants and other food service industry players as well as five to seven million job losses over the next three months. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot. And then uh, the data analytics firm NPD Group reports that total restaurant transaction volume was down 8% the week of March, uh, the, mar- the week ending March 15th, compared to the same week in 2019. Full service restaurants took the biggest hit between 20 and 25%. Uh, QSR saw a 7% decline in transaction. And, and since that data, we're recording this today on the 25th, right. I'm sure that data could be – I was about to is, say, it's going to be probably yeah, cratered exactly. out exactly. It's there. even worse. Yeah. Uh, here's another one from Open Table. Uh, they support a network of about 60,000 restaurant clients. Right. They're seeing steep declines in year-over-year seated diners, whopping 100% drop as of March 21st. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's really incredible, and that's, you know, when you think about it, James, uh, that's not even with all states in closing down restaurants. Exactly, right. There's, there's definitely still a lot of downside potential with those numbers, for sure. With those numbers, yeah, for sure. You know, and you know, obviously, uh, off digital off-premise sales are the fastest and perhaps the only really growing segment of the restaurant industry um, right now. Sure. Even, but that was so even without coronavirus. Right. You know. Right. I was looking at a research note uh, from William Blair, uh, which was put out last year, and, and it projected digital off-premise restaurant sales to grow at a compound annual rate of 25 percent. Rising from over 25 billion in 2018 to 62 billion by 2022. Wow, hmm. that's and that, like I said, that was last year. And that same report suggested dine-in revenues will fall from 59 percent of total restaurant sales in, um, to just about 44 percent in 2022. Right. And again, all of this data was before coronavirus struck. Right, right. Wow, and. Hmm. And, you know, I realize that uh, you did a, you know, um, you took on the topic of online restaurant ordering in a, spe- in a special interview last week, I right. believe, right, with uh, Dave Humphrey at Bright Payments. Right. I wanted to, but I wanted to hone in a little bit on this again um, in my insider's report. You know, much of the growth to date in online ordering is being, has been driven by third-party delivery services like DoorDash, Grubhub, Uber Eats. Right. Um, and, you know, obviously social distancing and shelter in place dictates around coronavirus are going to drive even more growth. But, you know, many of the national food delivery services don't extend to rural areas. I mean, where I live in rural Maryland, right. for example, I'm way outside the delivery area for any of the national services or even local restaurants. Really? Yeah. I, in fact, we were. I'm actually kind we of surprised a, by that. This, yeah, I, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm about 12 miles from town, huh. and um, <laughs> I was quite surprised a couple weeks ago. Somebody knocked on the door, which nobody knocks on the door when you're right. out here in the country. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, somebody knocks on the door. I go to the door, and there's a pizza guy there. I'm like, you people deliver out here? Well, it's a thirty-dollar <laughs> minimum. <laughs> like, <laughs> Right. Heck, I'll do that, but this wasn't my pizza. You know, it was the people next door. Right. But you know, he went to the wrong house. I was like ecstatic. I went over and said, "How did you get them to come out here?" She's like, "Oh, I've been begging them for years." Wow. <laughs> you know? Well, you know what? It's funny you bring that up. So, you know, I live obviously out in the country as well, in, in rural uh, central Pennsylvania here, and um, for the longest time, I would check Uber Eats and DoorDash and right. Grubhub. And, As I do. <laughs> right. And both DoorDash and Uber Eats, they had like, you know, the map that showed their service area. It literally ended on like the intersection before the street that goes to my house. 
right? <laughs> and it was like, oh my word, it was so frustrating. And then, but I, the reason I was surprised you don't have it is, you know, now I do have Uber Eats and DoorDash, which I use, you know, honestly all the time. Uh, right. And so, you know, I was uh, so I'm a little surprised, but yeah, I mean, it, it is true that they don't have the kind of coverage that you would really expect at this point. I mean, to me, it's like just charge, you know, have an upcharge for the longer delivery. I mean, I don't exactly. really see what the problem I is. Mean, with this pizza joint that I delivered, they're like, look, it's going to, you know, you got to charge, we got to charge you, you know, you got to pay it by at least $30 worth. Right. And it will take us a half an hour to get there. I'm like, I don't care. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Right. Like, hey, I just want my food. So, you know. I just want some pizza, you know. Sure. And, uh, sure. You know, and, and so, yeah, I, like you, I mean, I, I've been checking DoorDash and those other ones every week and they don't, uh, they don't come within about five miles of my place. So. Right. Right. It's a little bit of a bummer, but you know, the other thing about these nationwide delivery services, as we, I think Dave even talked about, and you've talked about, they can be really expensive for cash-strapped restaurants. Absolutely. You know, commissions of like twenty percent, and uh, and then you know, even though some of these services are foregoing commissions right now, um, there's still issues like as Dave described, li- uh, less control over the customer experience and loyalty. Mm-hmm. You know, lack of quality control and profit margins. Right. Um, right. I have I have a friend whose um, daughter works at a deli on Maryland's Eastern Shore, and she was complaining to us recently that, um, and it was interesting. Uh, apparently, even though you can go online and order your DoorDash food, those online orders don't necessarily go online. Don't you know come into the restaurants as an online thing. Um, in right. this case of this this deli, the orders um, come in from an offshore call center. Right, right. And the callers are not um, always uh, native English speakers. Exactly. Yep. And she was complaining that you know a lot of times they don't understand what's what the orders are, and you know they get customers, you know they get the orders messed up. You know that's really bad for customer service too. You, you know, know and, I'll, and I'll tell you from from my experience again, being somebody that's used Uber Eats and DoorDash um, extensively. Uh, you know, one thing that that's very palpable is how much small business owners hate these services. Not just from a financial perspective, but I'll give you an example. Um, two or three times now, I've made an order from a particular restaurant, usually a newer one that I'm like, oh, I didn't, I hadn't ordered from that one before, but I saw it on you know the, the right. app and, and I made an order. And the order came and it was, you know, massively incorrect. <clears throat> you know, it was not yes. at all what I wanted. So what happens is, you know, I call the the restaurant and uh, and they'll they say, we don't even know your order. Like, like, it's not like my, right. my order is under the name of James Shepard. It's right. one of the DoorDash orders. They have no idea. And they're like, mm-hmm. look, you know, we just get it from DoorDash and then we do it. So then I reach out to DoorDash. Well, what does DoorDash say? Well, the restaurant yeah. So yeah. A- as a result, as a consumer, you know, because of this lack of control of the experience, you really do get stuck in the middle. And it's just a terrible experience for everybody involved because these small businesses are like, we really want to provide you a good experience. But, you know, mm-hmm. we we had the Uber driver confirm your order when they came in. They looked in the bag. They made sure everything was there. And like we all we have is the data they give us. And so the problem is it becomes kind of a finger pointing exercise that's right. just frustrating for the consumer. Frustrating for the consumer, and you know, I don't know about you, but if I got bad orders, I probably wouldn't go back to that restaurant. Exactly, because exactly, you don't you don't know. It's like, is it was this an Uber Eats problem or was this the restaurant problem? Well, I'll just order from somewhere else. Exactly. Uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and then you know, I think um, you know, we as we've discussed, ISOs and agents are standing up to the challenge. You know, Dave spoke last week about the need for homegrown platforms that integrate right. with POS systems and you know it's really all about fostering relationships uh you know the the restaurants with their clients and the ISOs with the restaurants right um and you know he also talked about the how bright offers a simple web-based menu ordering system uh, I don't want we don't need to go into a lot about that but what was interesting is uh right after we did that podcast i got a message from d Carawadra. um he runs a uh iso out in tennessee called impact pay system sure we interviewed him maybe about a year ago i yep. think yep um and he's put together a new online ordering um app for his restaurant clients it's a no cost online ordering that he calls bites okay 
Nice. Uh, yeah, really cute. The place, uh, the the place, you know, the place to eat is bites or something like that. You right. Know, it's a cute little uh, thing. But as he explained to me, you know, he said. Uh, we created this to help the restaurants continue to be operational. We wanted to make sure that rural restaurants have a way to do online ordering. Right. Sure. And, and you know, I think I, you know, I kind of throw that out there to to our listeners, you know, particularly if you're in 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 rural areas, uh, to you know, start thinking in terms of doing these types of of um, offerings for your merchants because you want to help them and. You know, given what the DoorDash is and the Uber Eats of the world, given the problems we've just discussed about that, wouldn't you want to have more control over it? Yeah, and you know, uh, you know, one thing that I, I do want to just touch on here for a second is that, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's important for the ISOs and agents to understand that while these solutions that are coming out are potentially a great sales hook and a way to provide value to merchants and develop that relationship now, um, mm-hmm. the odds of it, you know, be careful about what you promise, you know, right. the, the odds of a small restaurant that has never done delivery successfully implementing delivery during the coronavirus, um, not good, not good. Um, so I think the presentation needs to be more, don't you wish you would have done this six months ago? Well, right. things are slow right now. So what are you going to do? Why don't right. we, I'm not telling you this is going to save your business or it's going to make you thousands of dollars, but Let's go ahead and implement this now while you have the time. It's free mm-hmm. if you know in, in the case of the the you know solution like last week and the one you just mentioned, it's free. So let's implement this now. Let's develop the relationship so that this does not happen to you again and so that you can generate some revenue. But I think there there has to be this kind of um, you know, I was at Cracker Barrel uh, a few days ago picking up food, and they've you know they've dramatically changed their menu. It's significantly simplified. Um, I bet, sure. Right, and so it's like things like this. So I would say I would just kind of caution the ISOs and agents that are listening in last week and this week, going, "Oh, I've got it." You know, online ordering—that's how I'm going to save all the restaurants in my community. No, no, it's a way that you can sell some of the restaurants in your community. It's a way you can establish a relationship based on value. But as mm-hmm. far as actual business results, unlikely that you're going to have a massive impact. If, it, if a restaurant does not already have delivery, they're probably going to really struggle whether they implement this or not. And if you're not careful, it can actually turn out to be an operational negative if they try to implement mm-hmm. it where it's like all of a sudden they're getting three orders a day and they have to pay a, a full-time cook to be there and someone as a driver and they have to buy food products and so all of a sudden the expenses can actually outweigh the revenue so just wanted to put a little word of caution out there that this focus on online ordering is more a fact of restaurants are now very much in the realization that they need this that doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean you're going to dramatically you know like come in as the superman to save their business right now true and i also think that you know there's also a lesson to be taken um in terms of how you might be able to help other businesses. Of course, absolutely. You know, online ordering. I mean, one of the things that, that, that in, my, in my research this week that came up is, you know, basically, uh, you know, the stores that, that, that are going to be okay, perhaps, are the ones that are selling essential items, right? Sure. Like, uh, you know, your little bodega, you know, selling, selling foods and, and medicines. Well, you know, if you have some of those stores, those might be places you should also consider adding adding value with some sort of online um, offering. I think the key here is what you said. It's about, you know, del- helping to deliver more value. And yeah, it you know when you when you're delivering a new value proposition, it never pays off immediately. Right. Right. Well, and, and I think too, I think like for some of those, uh, like you know, even retail establishments, things that like that they can implement online ordering and the way to present that to them in my opinion is you know to go after the higher end clients and those who can afford to pay for this additional service service um, yeah right like mm-hmm. i mean you know as an example i just paid 7 wait hold on what was it no is it 30 yeah i paid $39 $39 for a six pack of baby wipes on eBay, I bought two boxes. Oh, I bet you. Yeah, no, that doesn't right? surprise me. Now, right. you know, I'm not about. We're not about to run out of baby wipes. I don't care if I got to pay a hundred dollars. You know, right? I'm, you, you know, got a baby, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> there are other things I could do, and I'm not going to do them. So, you know, right. I'm not going to run out of baby wipes. You know. Now, my point to that is, to your point, these businesses that are providing essential things right now. 
there are people who are willing to pay a $15 delivery fee. Yes, they are. Right, because your business can't be open right now maybe and you're in a state where it's actually closed. They're willing to pay 15 bucks to have something. So talk to these clients about, you know, what what would you need to charge to make this worthwhile? Um, right. And then charge it, you know, that you you, you have to make money on, on what you're doing right now. But again, I think it's still establishing that long term value is, is really crucial. Yeah, it's definitely about looking to the long term. So, well, before we close this week, I wanted to just pull up one thing that came out um, in my research uh, sure. for, for doing this insider's report. It was a it was a bit of interesting news. The National Restaurant Association. Is, has taken this opportunity to amp up pressure on Congress for action on interchange. Yeah, I saw this. <laughs> you saw that, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, as of March 24th, they've gotten three, about uh, close to 300,000 members to send emails to Congress and the White House calling for relief. And I thought this quote was from the uh, association was very interesting. Providing short-term relief and longer-term recovery for restaurants and employees means looking at all options in the financial toolbox, including grants, effective access to affordable credit, tax relief, easing lease, rent, mortgage, and loan payments, reductions in credit card fees, and more. It's sort of like, oh yeah, let's throw that in just to you know, just to, just to keep Don't it miss keep it alive, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But but it also goes to something you know you and I have spoken a lot about is you know merchants are feeling pinched and any relief you can give them in in pricing you know AKA surcharging or cash discounting is probably going to be you know a, a a welcome sign at this point. Yeah, and I think it's one of the things that again as you're talking to um, restaurant uh, you know merchants right now bringing that up and saying mm-hmm. you know the cost of payments is. is gotten so high that mm-hmm. you know the restaurant association is actually trying to they're 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 putting that in with their list of mortgage payments or you know it's, it's like right. you know this right. is a big expense you know this big is expense, right. this is huge and it really is interesting when you think about how the slim the margins are at most restaurants i mean what mm-hmm. expense does a restaurant other than credit card processing what other expense is there that a restaurant has to pay a percentage of every single order i mean other than food, you know, the, the cost of goods sold, you know, other than their actual ingredients. I mean, you know, there's not much yeah. else you look at. So I think credit card processing is is definitely going to be on that hit list of things. And, and, you know, the other point too, Patty, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, the other point I made in our Facebook group recently is I said, you know, not only is this a time where restaurants and businesses are going to be looking to cut expenses by potentially eliminating credit card fees through cash discount or surcharge, but I think, and I could be totally wrong, but I would think this is a time that consumers would actually, even though they're pinched as well, I feel like consumers right now might be a little bit more understanding about that too. Like if I go mm-hmm. into a business and they have a sign up that they're passing on the cost of processing and I get an extra 4% charge and they say, hey, you know, things are just so tight we can't afford to pay to take your card. If you want right. to pay cash, go for it. Like as a consumer right now, I'm going to be like, okay, I get it. You know, I don't and, know. And, yeah, no, I think you, actually it's interesting you brought that up because I was going to I was going to bring up this very same thought. You know, you talk about you're willing to pay thirty nine dollars for the baby wipes, right? Right. I mean, because you know there's a there's a cost of doing business. Right. I think a lot of consumers and and you know and I I you got to credit the retailers for for making this part of the uh, the, the consuming uh, consciousness. Is you know a lot of consumers realize it costs merchants money to accept our cards. Right. And if I'm willing to order thirty dollars worth of pizza because it'll be delivered to me because it's convenient. Yep. I'm also willing to pay a little bit more for that convenience of you taking my credit card. And I you know I've talked to a lot of people about this, and you know, it, they a lot of my friends you know, are very concerned about restaurants right now, Right. you know, right. and I think that it would be a, a prime time for restaurants to be um, offering cash discount or, or surcharging yeah. because uh, we are aware of it. We are aware that these guys are really suffering, and a lot of people, you know, I have some friends that specifically went out to local mom-and-pop restaurants and bought gift certificates. Right, 
Right. You know, not because they had to give any gifts, but it was like, man, I feel so bad for this pizza shop. You know, they right. they don't right. have anybody. Yep. Uh, you know, I I bought a thirty dollar gift certificate. I'll probably use it in a month or two. Yep. But at least it helps him right now. And in fact, uh, you know, I think you're going to see more of that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. More support your small business type campaigns and stuff for sure. Mm-hmm. So and 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 yeah. cash discounting and surcharging can be positioned as yep. support your small business. Yep, absolutely. Wow, really good stuff, Patty. It's so interesting, and it's uh, it's such a crazy time right now in the payments industry that, you know, obviously I know you're going to help to keep us up to date every week on the Insider's Report as things develop, right. and it's just things are just changing rapidly. So my advice to salespeople is tune into the Insider's Report and, and uh, stay alert and aware of how fast things are changing and what's happening because if you're going to try to just do the same thing you've always done and be successful right now, it's, it's not going to You're gonna not going to be successful. <laughs> So, no, good. you're not. And then if I can throw a pitch for uh, your your Facebook group, I've really been been really intrigued by some of the comments that have been coming through there. Yeah, in it's the been last a lot of fun. Week. Yeah, uh, it's it's just good to get everybody together. I think we now have 750 uh, members in there. So yeah, if you're listening and you want to jump into a group with um, uh, really just a huge group of independent sales professionals that sell merchant services, just go to Facebook and either search for merchant sales or search for, it's called the CC Sales Pro Community, um, but we're now the top ranked private uh, Facebook group in the industry. So just search for merchant sales or something like that and it'll pop right up. Yeah. And I think you'll find some really interesting people are sharing some really interesting um, ideas and, yep. and yep. asking interesting questions and and it's a, it's, a, it's a very active group, so awesome. I, well, I, I appreciate highly the recommend it. <laughs> so awesome. Well, thanks, Patty. Good stuff. Hey, thank you, James. Good stuff. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. With over 30 training courses covering everything from sales objections to statement analysis, ISOs are using our learning management system to help new agents understand the industry and how to sell merchant services. Industry veterans love our courses because we dive deeper into concepts such as interchange and explore new industry trends like cash discounting, NFC, and the resurgence of American Express with the OptiBlue program. Put all of these training courses together with the leading proposal creation tool for merchant services agents in the field, and we believe our branded ISO solution and individual user package is a must-have. Visit instantquotetool.com today or email support at instantquotetool.com to learn more. So today on Questions from the Field, a special uh, episode here, a special segment. I want to talk, Patty, about phone sales. And specifically, I want to help people who are currently selling face-to-face who are mm, now yeah. stuck in the situation. You know? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Yeah, Shoot away. They, yeah, they've they've got to, they've got to switch what they're doing, um, yeah. and so what my goal here because you know phone sales is such a big topic. Um, I, I, ironically, right now I'm recording a new uh, course on this. It's going to be multiple hours. I'm writing an ebook, so I'm doing a bunch of stuff to help with this. But you know, I'm like, okay, what can I say in ten minutes? <laughs> you know, um, right? And and what I want to do is I just want to dispel a few kind of common myths and give you a okay. little bit of direction as a sales representative of you know what do I do on the phone. So I want to give you a couple of tips. Um, so. Tip number one, tip number one is as you're designing your strategy of like, what am I going to, you know, okay, I'm going to get on the phone and do what? Who am I going to call? What am I going to say? The first thing you need to understand is that unlike going out in the field face to face where there is a big advantage to going into every business because you just can walk into every business, it's a lot more efficient. Right. It's not any more efficient and it's actually a really bad idea when you're on the phone prospecting to do that. When you're on the phone prospecting, you've got to focus on one specific vertical at a time, right? right? Um, Mm -hmm. Simply because why would you not do that? Like, you know, there's 87 pizza shops in your area and there's 46 hair salons. Like, why wouldn't you just call those one after another? Um, Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't take any extra time to do that. You don't have to walk to the business. You're just on the phone. So number one, focus. And when I say that, I mean focus on a specific vertical and think through what your value proposition is going to be to that specific business type. So we talked on this episode about restaurants, calling them about cash discounting or calling them about online ordering. I would choose one. Okay. Right. When you're on the phone getting, you know, it's not the same when you're face to face, you just kind of shoot in the breeze because they can't hang up on you. 
Um, mm-hmm. When you're on the phone, people can hang up on you. So you have to be very laser focused. You're trying to get uh, interest in one thing, one specific thing. So be very focused. So that's number one. Tip number one is focus on a specific vertical, both who you're calling and also the value proposition that you're going to put in place. Can so, I ask you, can yeah. I interject a real Please. quick question here? Because I, I, th- I hear what you're saying. Now, what about focusing this week on pizza parlors and next week on nail salons? Or Absolutely. Or is that diverting your attention too No, no, much? no. I think that's fine. I, but the only thing I will say is as we get into the rest of this, the problem is there is some planning time. It might literally take you two days to get mm-hmm. ready to do this for one vertical, okay. right? Okay. So there is sure. a there is a switching cost just because you have to make a new script, you have to test the script. You know, it might take you a little while to get good at it. But the other thing is, you may you know, it depends on how far you want to go geographically. Like you might run mm-hmm. out of pizza shops to call within three days, you know. Right. So then sure. you gotta switch, you know. So um, so there's a balance there, but there's definitely a switching cost. Just not not because you're losing focus, but because you have to plan a new value proposition new and, and so forth. And you, and you sure. might have to reach. You might have to find a new Clover app that you're gonna use, or you might have to get a new POS solution you're going to offer, you know, so there's diff- different things like that, you know, as far as the switching cost. Good question, though. Okay. Um, okay, so <clears throat> once you know who you're going to sell and you know what you're going to sell, now you have to plan what you're going to say, okay? And I'm just going to mm-hmm. give you some really quick tips. You might have to listen to this a few times because um, I'm trying to get a lot of information in quickly, um, take some notes, you know, pull over right now and take some notes down. Um, but here's the idea. So, you really want to focus on what I call prospect action steps. So when you're on the phone, the goal is it's not about what you want to say or what you want to present. When you're on the phone, it's all about what action steps are you trying to get that merchant to take? So for instance, the first action step is you want to get them to answer yes to a qualifying question. Okay, that's step number one. So let me give you an example of this. Um, let's say I'm calling uh, hair salons in Atlanta, um, and I have a special offer I'm giving them to help people schedule future sessions. I want to pack out my schedule for once this is done or something. So mm-hmm. I might call them up, and, and I might introduce myself and say, you know, um, real quick today, my goal is I'm trying to call all of the hair salons in the Atlanta, Georgia area. Uh, we're trying to do some things to help out during this really difficult time. Now, I just want to confirm that this is a hair salon in Atlanta, Georgia area, right? You guys are, are still in the Atlanta area. Like, very simple. It's not, well, James, why do we need to do that? By doing that, you've now got their attention. They're not staring off into the mm-hmm. abyss or whatever. You know, their mind is. Right. Believe me, as a business owner, their mind is in other places right now. So you need to, you know, bring them in and you know to the, your conversation. So you ask a qualifying question, right? So then, then number two, you might try to get some information from them. So you could ask them a little bit more of an open-ended question, maybe. Um, you know, now before we continue with the call, I will tell you this particular solution tends to work best for hair salons that are processing at least you know ten to twenty thousand a month in revenue. Now I know the last month or so has been really rough, but before that, is that were you kind of at that range or higher? Um, you mm-hmm. might ask them something like that. You might ask them for contact information is a really good one. You might say, um, you know, now before I continue with the call, I definitely want to make sure I email you some information so you have it to review. Um, what's a good email address where I can send that? Um, right, sure. Right. So planning your pitch around these action steps, you know, getting a yes, then getting some kind of information. That By them sharing that information, um, that means they're interested. So, you know, again, there's things you're going to say in between these steps, but it's, you know, step one, say something to get them to say yes to a qualifying question. Step two, talk about your solution in general terms and then get them to provide some information to validate. Right. So, you know, then you just move through the sales process like that and ask yourself, what do you want? You know, maybe at some point you need them to email you a processing statement. Um, Maybe you need them to fill out a form. Um, I don't know. Maybe you need them to agree to a callback time, you know, whatever that is. Um, You know, you do that and that's that's totally fine. Um, So get those steps. So figure those. So the idea of making your pitch is before you make your pitch, figure out your prospect action steps. What do you want them to do? Because what you know, one thing you'll find is when you're on the phone, people will say almost anything. You know, it's not hard. It's not hard to get a yes on the phone. I mean, if you're good, if you're good at sales, especially you're like face to face, you're like, oh, I'm an amazing salesperson. Okay, you're going to get a lot of people to tell you yes on the phone. That doesn't mean they're going to buy anything from you. That doesn't mean they're going to fill out the agreement. They'll say yes, though. So 
you have to think in terms of not just getting them to say yes, you know, to some general thing. You have to get them to actually like do something, take action, give you information right. sure. a- along the way, so that by the time you get to the close, you know, okay, they're actually interested in this, right? So, so think through that process. Um, and then my final uh, tip for people that are moving to this uh, selling over the phone is understand that selling people over the phone is always, in, in my opinion, okay is always at least a two-call close. Okay? I would think at least, right? Yeah, so um, some of you are used to being out in the field. You can walk in. You can establish rapport. You close the deal, whatever. On the phone, there are these two very different conversations, and if you try to put them together, it does not work well. Um, the first conversation is the qualifying conversation and getting them interested, and mm-hmm. that's like a whole different thing um, that's generating a lead is what I call that. Um, right. So generating that lead, that's like the first level. And that conversation is really, again, if, if in the back of your mind you're like, okay, I got to try to close, I got to try to close, you're not going to be very effective with this call. Um, yeah, this, sure. You want to really come across on this call with what we call scarcity. So the idea is I don't want to mm-hmm. come across on this call like I really want your business. Right. I want to come across on this call like – I have something that could be very helpful to you if you qualify for it, and I'm and we're having this conversation to see if you see might if qualify. You right. Right. I don't. I'm right. not trying to like let's just close it. No, no, no. Like I, you know, I don't even, you know, people. It's funny. Like when you have when you're in that mindset, you say things differently. When people say, "Well, that sounds really interesting. How does it work?" and you're like, "Oh, I'll tell you how it works." Well, what we do, and and you're you're tempted. Yeah. Don't do that. That's not the purpose of the call. When they say, well, that sounds really interesting. How does it work? Well, I, you know, I don't want to take too much of your time today. I'm definitely interested in setting up a future call with you here in the next day or two to really dive into more detail. I just need to right now make sure that I don't want to take any more of your time until we know for sure you qualify for the program because a lot of businesses don't qualify. So let me ask you this question, and you get right back to qualifying. And so it's kind of like you know opposite of what a lot of salespeople are used to doing. But when you do that, that's how you get them interested is when they realize, oh, okay, like they are not dying for my business. This is Mm -hmm. something that, you know, so it's like you want to be very assumptive about the fact that it's a given that if you qualify for this, you definitely want to do it. It's a no brainer. I'm going to eliminate your processing fees or I'm going to give you a free point of sale system or I'm going to give you a free online ordering system or I'm going to dramatically reduce the cost of processing. You know, whatever the value proposition is, you want to make it a given during your pitch that obviously if you qualify for this, you're going to want it. But I just right. don't know if you qualify, which we're going to get into all the details on the next call. But this call, right. we just need to see if you qualify. So yeah. you want to split it up. Then once they are qualified, then you send them an email, whatever kind of follow up, and you set up that next appointment time. Make it seem like you're busy, you know. So um, would it work? So I, I definitely I know th- I know this is a time where people want to get things done quickly. Um, I'd love to talk to you about this tomorrow. I do have a, two different time slots left available right now. I could talk to you at 10 a.m. Eastern, or I could talk to you at 2:15 p.m. Eastern. You know whether that's a demo, whether that's you know, going over the information I just emailed you, whatever it is. You know, mm-hmm. have your rationale for the follow up, and then schedule the follow up. Then when you get on the follow-up, now it's totally different. Now we're assumptive and now we're selling. So now we're going to pick up the phone. They answer and say, hey, how are you doing today, Susan? Boy, you know, it's so great talking with you yesterday. I've got great news for you. Um, after everything you said, we went ahead and did a little more research on your business. You definitely qualify for the program. I'm really excited about it. So I want to make sure I explain everything to you and answer any questions before we move forward and make sure everything's good on your side. And now you go in. So now, in their mind, they're like, I won. You know, I can buy right, from this person. Sure. Yes. And now you go in and, and you do your presentation. And again, in a very assumptive way, turning everything as a question, even if they start to have objections. Well, well, I don't know about that. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, that's such a great question. So let me explain a little bit further before we move forward, but keep it very assumptive. So, mm-hmm. so there's my tips as far as transitioning over to the phone. It is very different. Um, but I will tell you that during this time, it's something that you can really leverage to your advantage, uh, both to service the community, but also, of course, to make some sales and, and make some money. Businesses are still buying things right now, um, and so you can really kind of leverage that to your advantage. And I will tell you, the other advantage you have is you know, you're not tone deaf to what's happening. You know, If they're getting calls right. from an overseas call center or a group of unskilled telemarketers right now, they're probably very offended that they've right. received this unsolicited call during this time. 
So yeah, yeah. you being you know, as a, a sales professional, you can of course be sensitive to that. And of course you're going to have some very minimal small talk at the beginning about that. You know, like, boy, I'll tell you, it's such a crazy time. I, I was actually planning this week to get out to all the hair salons in Atlanta. And, and, you know, now of course I can't do that. And so I just right. thought I'd reach out to you on the phone. You know, all of a sudden it's very clear you're local. It's very clear you're aware of what's happening. You know, I would even go so far as to maybe drop a very specific fact or interesting news item that's happening right now in your community to further clarify, look, I'm, I'm right here. We're in this together. Like I'm here with you. Um, you know, for me right now, if I was calling, I'd be like, you know, yeah, you know, we just had our very, I'm in Altoona and I'd say, you know, yeah, we just had our first case of confirmed coronavirus in Altoona. So, you know, boy, everybody's just really being cautious right now. You know, just saying that they're like, oh, okay, this definitely this guy lives in Altoona, you know, so right, um, sure. so things like that, um, you can be sensitive to that and you can leverage that again, not just to profiteer off of all of this, but to legitimately, you know, find programs that are going to help business owners and, and reach out and offer those. So there you and go. Especially to help business owners in your own community. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there you go. There's the tips on how to sell merchant services over the phone right now. Great stuff, James. Thanks. Thanks, Patty. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.